Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. This is Talking Gardens. I'm Stephanie Mahan, editor of Gardens Illustrated. And this week, I'm talking to Arish Anderson, garden designer, TV presenter, and one of the founders of the Sustainable Landscape Foundation. I caught up with Arish at her home, which just happens to be on a major flight path. So apologies for the sound quality on this one. So Arish, if you could choose some gardens that you visited or that you love, that would be inspiration for your dream garden. What's the first place that you would think of? That question, <laughs> step is so difficult because seeing so many gardens and then trying to do a memory recall on all of them. I think the thing about the gardens that I've visited that I've enjoyed, that they give you a sense of wow when you go in. It doesn't have to be that they all look the same. It's not always about them being highly floriferous. It doesn't matter what time of year. There's just something about the space that makes you just take a breath in. And I think that's what's quite important. For example, I was recently down at Sarah Raven's garden at Perch Hill and it's autumn time. And because she's such a fantastic horticulturalist and she's like, oh, Harriet, you know, garden's starting to go over now. And I was thinking I would be absolutely loving a garden <laughs> like this that's going over in the middle of autumn. Dahlia's still pumping out, Aster's still pumping out. Just fabulous. So you go into a space like Perch Hill and it's just amazing the abundance of floral content planting combinations that take your breath away that are really fantastic equally I was very lucky to be at Dan Hinckley's garden Wincliffe isn't that what it's called Wincliffe absolutely and being there in February which uh, the climate is very similar to ours so Dan was really upset that he was I'd been taken out there in the middle of February when obviously there is no floral content there is nothing really kind of in flower or really looking green but there was something about that space it's the you can see the bones of that garden in fact it was quite I'm quite glad I saw it at that time of year because shows you how the space itself is being curated, the way that the plants that were still there, statuesque, and also as well, he has got an amazing onward view to the sea. So I think that different gardens, it doesn't really matter, as I said, what you're just seeing is how it makes you feel. And that's something that I'd really want to capture in my fantasy garden is how do you feel once you come through the gate? That wow factor is what we're looking for. Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah, definitely. And the wow, and the wow, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a perfected wow, really not. It's something that speaks to your heart. 
something that makes you just stop for a moment. And I think that's the important thing because as, as gardeners, we, we're always, well, we can always be comparing at times. If only I had this, if only I had that, uh, wondering what we haven't got. But sometimes I think we forget to look at the spaces in between um, and look at the bits that we have got. The spaces in between. I like that. <laughs> the spaces in between is a lovely phrase that I was, I guess, gifted, taken from when I used to do a lot of more spiritual work. And that's where the magic happens in the space in between. I think sometimes we think we're looking at the solidity of a plant and we're looking at the solid matter, but actually we're looking at everything around it, the air around it, the shadowing, the shapes, the light that gets cast. So it that's where the magic actually is performed and that's where the wow is. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? And I think there's also a lot of developing interest in sort of the spaces in between in terms of woodland edge, the edges of, you know, between one sort of ecotype and another. Um, I'm hearing more and more of people discussing plants that can do well in lots of different conditions or on the edges of two different types of space. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if that's going to be the next big thing in horticulture is really examining these more uh, edge spaces in between different things, a little bit of sun, a little bit of shade and, and quite a lot of interesting plant choices in that as well. Well, that definitely seems to be gaining more momentum, Steph, because I think that's where you know, when, when people are talking about, say, like on a lawn, that's where the magic is happening between the sort of like the longer sward and the shorter uh, sward of the grass, for example. And it's these different what's kind of called these different ecotones that are kind of coming up against each other. That where there's a handover, if you like, there's a handover of the biodiversity and the wildlife that lives in one space versus that lives in another. So you get like a kind of a, a magic that happens in those spaces. And I think in a in a garden, it can sometimes feel difficult to create that, but it is possible. It is possible. And that's, we yeah, are definitely be working on that. So you've told us that your fantasy garden would have a wow factor, but what about inspirations from wider landscapes, not just gardens? Is there places that you've been that just blew you away that you think I'd really love a part of that in my dream garden? Well, I think that's where the wow bit comes from, actually, because one of my favourite go-to places, and I've rekindled it from when I was a child, is the Lake District. When I was a child, my mum would take us up there, and we're quite a big family, and it would be camping under proper canvas. <laughs> We'd be driven up in a proper old Land Rover with sore bottoms if you didn't get your cushion on the go. And so going up to the Lake District then as a child was my mum's, I guess, fantasy of fabulousness because we'd be washing at a stream we so she used to hire a, a little space in a farmer's field quite literally and we'd have to wash at the stream and like I said and, and my mum would go and get the milk for, uh, fresh from the farmer and things but let me tell you as a child there was nothing romantic about that it was cold <laughs> and soggy soggy sleeping bags and where are we going now and all you'd be waiting for is the Kendall Mint <laughs> <laughs> I think that yeah, once you've got your Kendall mint cake and you probably would see another lake and my mum going all excited about it, it must have stuck by osmosis. And of course, as I got older and I remembered, you know, the, 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 the Lake District and my mum's love of the Lake District, 
And I think I went back up there in my 20s and realised, wow, yeah, this is a really fabulous landscape. And then more recently, I had just come into doing uh, gardening and garden design and I pushed myself a little bit ahead of probably my skill set. And I had started to design a garden for a client that probably looked like I said a bit ahead of where I was and it got a bit stressful to say the least because there's a lot to <laughs> there's a lot to happen in putting the garden together and I needed a little bit of respite and I thought where am I going to run to <laughs> where can I escape for a little bit and it was to the Lake District and there's something about going up the M6 hitting around Junction 27 watching the landscape shift and change where it it just draws you in and I have on many occasions gotten so far and and felt physically teary it's that emotional response to that land which I probably hadn't realized I was brought up in Hertfordshire which is Greenbelt no real gardening history in our family it wasn't exciting and romantic at all we'd go out in the garden and have to do a bit of weeding almost like a chore and there wasn't really a garden that to, to speak of because my mum was looking after seven kids on her own so going out to play was something that we definitely enjoyed but there would be something about like going up to the Lake District that for me made me and still makes me feel insignificant and I don't think of myself as hugely significant anyway but certainly that you can go up there and you can throw it out to the landscape knowing all the worries that I've got are going to be gone in a nanosecond in comparison to the fact that this amazing landscape will be there years and thousands of years before and thousands of years after me and so you realize you can get yourself you can recalibrate yourself back into the the pecking order of life that it's only a moment that it feels awful and it it, is not going to last forever and I think that's one of the draws of a garden there are other parts of the UK that I really love as well I really like the west country there's something about going down the A303 of an evening because I really enjoy sunset. And I think that there's something around the West, sunset, my birth sign actually, that's all very linked together. So I'm a Virgo and I wouldn't say that I'm, uh, I, I quite like astrology. I like astrology readings, but I'm not an astrologer. And there was something that was given to me one time from a, um, an astrology that was really made sense of how the the star signs are and well they're all sun signs obviously and how it works through the year because leo which is sort of going into august is when we're at the zenith of light and that's when our gardens are really full bloom and resplendent and all the growing is really really hitting a peak and there is something about that which is great i think we all love the summertime but equally it can be quite frenetic there's a lot of energy about so as a virgo he explains to me that you're being handed the baton of light from leo which means that you're kind of going shh let's start to slow down um the virgos are that kind of pivotal part where we're coming off of summer into autumn and when you look on, at autumn in terms of, say, Native American Indian, how they look at the seasonality, that kind of all rolls into the West, you know, the autumn of our lives, all of that type of thing. And it kind of makes sense because I, I actually am more of an owl than a lark. So I like 
sunset. I like that light slightly dipping. I don't have issues of going into winter. But I, I think that there's something obviously in this fantasy garden where I'll definitely have to have uh, views of the sunset for sure. That's definitely got to come into play. Yeah, the West Country, I really like the West Country. I think there's something around Somerset where there's always water, there's always little river tributaries. I would never have put myself down as somebody that would be a water person. I don't really swim, (laughs) so I'm not a swimmer. But there is something about having levels of water around me that's great. And currently, I live by the River Thames. I'm very close to the River Thames. I can drop down to the the towpath. But the point about living near the River Thames in the part of London that I live means we get a lot of planes, though, Steph. So we must make sure that in my new landscape, because you probably keep hearing them coming over. Sometimes hearing them as we talk, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes as we talk. If we could, if we, if, yeah, that's not so great. But I going back to sort of wider landscapes, and this wow and this awe, it, that's what's important. There's a lovely writer, Florence Williams, who wrote Nature Fix, and she talked very much about this breathing in of the landscape. It quite literally makes you, <gasps> as you breathe it in, and that oxygen that comes into your lungs, that energy in, intake that you have of the land, that's where, again, this potent magic works. So there's lots of different landscapes. I mean, I've been lucky enough to travel a little bit, go off into Spokane up in um, northwest America. There's landscapes there, where, whether it's mountainous regions, there's seasides as well. So I, I don't have a favourite landscape. I have some favourite places. The lakes is most definitely in my heart. But I think it, it still goes back to the feeling that it gives you when you're out in those spaces. It's so funny when you mentioned about going off to the Lake District as a child and camping there and just not really being that bothered or interested by it. Just thinking it's cold and damp and I just want to go home. Can I have my Kendall mooncake now? But it reminded me of, uh, I think every Sunday when I was a child, we used to get dragged out for a walk after lunch. Uh, in the woodland and and I was just like oh god do we have to go why are we here (laughs) and now I live in the woods and I do that to to defrag just like you talked about you know you go you have that moment where you feel like oh nothing really matters I'm here now I've got perspective again I feel better having just been out in nature for a little bit so it's so interesting isn't it that those moments from childhood that we definitely didn't enjoy then that then as adults were drawn back to almost as our stress relief there must be a psychologist somewhere nodding and saying yes yes it's all very common and uh, interesting and <laughs> <laughs> well I hope that there is because I think it's the osmosis that we're going to have to rely on in the coming years because getting into outside space, as we know, especially for young people, is is very difficult. As we become more urbanised, having that real sense of place and memory is going to be more important that we try to get children out into that. You know, I know with my own stepchildren, they don't have that sort of sense of wanting to be out. It's, it's a, I think there's a, the, net, the new net migration is indoors. That's, that's what they yeah. say, which people people are spending more time indoors than you would actually in a prison, if you think about it. So that osmosis of, of being out as a child, you're absolutely right. Somewhere it, it runs true. And I've been doing talks where I go out to people and I'll say to them about childhood gardening memories. And they're all really 
they can you're almost there with them when they're describing it but you can the taste of the tomato that they're referring to or the smell of the greenhouse that they was in with their grandfather real strong memory connection and even though it dips off at whatever stage of their life unless they decide to be a you know a, a, a gardening professional a landscape professional as they've gotten older it definitely comes back it's in our dna <laughs> which is good you didn't you know you you had a career before you came into garden design didn't you you were in fashion is that right yeah i had multiple careers <laughs> i was beginning to wonder where's it all going i mean i started in pharmacy originally as a pharmacy uh technician i did not know that yeah wow. that's my very first job was a, i was at college and i went i was a pharmacy technician i loved the study i loved the science but i didn't particularly like the job as such i then went into fashion yes which is kind of a lot of people know that I also uh, trained as a holistic therapist in some different modalities of massage and, and healing and reflexology and also did event management and then gardening. And now I can look back and go, yes, yes, yes. I can see all the connections as to how all of those different things have now led me to the garden, up the garden path, <laughs> quite literally. Plants, obviously, are the backbone of modern medicine. The, the fashion element is about the collections of putting together families and stories. Is I've had to swap coats and trousers and jackets for trees and shrubs and perennials. And then the healing aspect is really the bit that I'm hoping as I get older and as I get more experience at what I'm doing, that I can really, really start to bring through gardens. Obviously, that's been always there but it's something that I want to be able to bring through myself and the event management side even is when you're creating a show garden when you're installing a garden for somebody all of those event management skills if there is there's an end date of completion but of course the great thing with the garden is that when we back out that's when the garden starts so I think if anybody is listening who has a different skill set to when they garden just think of the parallels, because it doesn't have to be literal. When I first come into the industry, I felt like a baby at age 44, and I'm never going to be able to play with the grown-ups, and I don't really understand what I'm doing, and there's too much to learn. But then equally, we'd get really excited that there's so much to learn, and how exciting is that? And to learn from the grown-ups, as I call them, and just have luckily have found a, a space where I can hopefully help our gardening community, which is mainly through communication. So, yeah, there's a place for everybody in, in a garden setting always. And then, of course, your your slight segue into TV presenting, which is, I think, how most people would know you is from being on the telly uh, talking <laughs> about gardens. Was that quite a, a challenge for you? Did you feel like, I mean, you look like such a natural on screen. Uh, was it easy for you to slip into that role? Did you feel uh, quite relaxed about it or was it was it really nerve wracking? Oh, well, thank you for saying that it comes across naturally. That's good to know because I just try to be the same. Well, I not try. Sorry, I am the same person on screen as I am off. Like, there's not a, a different persona. The, the bit with the TV, it came about from the show garden that I did in 2016 being televised. And when I was being interviewed, it felt quite easy as in because it's really all based around having a good old chat and Steph you know that that's what I like a good old chat the difference is, is that you've got a camera in your face which is slightly that is slightly different 
the the TV thing is not something that I set out to. I want to be on telly. I want to be known. Definitely not that at all. The reason why I pursued it was because I realised that it's about it's a teaching vehicle. And in previous jobs that I've done throughout the different careers that I've done, I mean, I was a I was a teacher of, of healing uh, therapies. I used to teach as well as be a therapist. I used to teach a lot when I was in the retail career as well. So. And and that sense of inquiry, which is very Virgoan um, as a trait, very, very inquisitive, telly allows you to be able to do that and with people. And I'm probably one of a, a few brigade that actually like people because people laugh when I say that. They go, well, everybody likes people. No, they don't. A lot of people don't really <laughs> like people. They get on their nerves <laughs> and it's quite difficult being around people. And I felt that there's an opportunity to show people that you don't have to have gardened forever because I think sometimes people can feel intimidated from by that and I certainly did so I wanted to be able to let people know that it's okay and also I'm very much the sort of person who likes to give people a platform to have a voice that there are so many fantastic people in our industry who don't shout about what they do. There's a lovely phrase that um, that, I've been, that I was given about garden people being quite shade loving. And I think that that's probably a fair sort of assumption in, 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 as a sort of a broad brush term. We, we're not shouty people in terms of you know, in comparison maybe to some of our architect friends or other industries. We just keep under the radar and yet there are people doing fantastic fantastic work not only with the spaces that they work in but helping people through green therapy and I just feel if we're able to give those people a a platform then we should and that's what I love about the the tv aspect and the communications aspect is chatting to those people. So, Eric, so far you've told us that your dream garden would have a wow factor, like Dan Hinckley's lovely Wincliffe or Sarah Raven's Perch Hill, or indeed from your favourite places in the Lake District and the West Country at sunset. If there was a design feature that you would have to include in your dream garden, what would you choose? I guess the dream garden, you see, is probably going to be incredibly different to mine because I have a tiny garden I have a live in a terrace I have a 10 meter by four meter space of which some of that space is taken up now by a small studio so in reality there's only seven meters by four meters of, of space to sit have plants to do everything that you're supposed to do in a garden so space is, a, is tight and of a minimum one of the things I guess I would enjoy in this garden would be to have an expanse of water you know, really large natural pond. I don't have the the benefits of that in the space that I live in and obviously a lot of places that I've visited and, and, and obviously knowing that water is a huge draw of life, water being, you know, one of our life-giving properties on this planet, it would be fabulous to be able to see the sky drawn down into its reflection, see what life comes through into that space and yeah, and it's, a, and it's something that I don't have an experience of. So I think that would be really quite great um, to have in, in, the, in the garden as a, as, a, as a feature, as a place to go. I was um, lucky enough to interview Dan Pearson at his garden and he, he didn't have a pond at that point um, when I went to interview him. And since, since then he has. And, I keep, and, and he lives 
it's sort of in the southwest as well so that's a double draw so I keep saying to him oh Musk if it's okay can I come back and look at the pond and and I knew when he when he was going to put it in it was the perfect place where this pond was going to be this large pond a body of water so I think it's there's something probably quite magical about that and you never know Steph I might even if it's big enough I might even learn to swim <laughs> so a kind of a swimming pond well and obviously, <laughs> yeah and obviously so good for wildlife as well I mean that's one of the main benefits of adding any kind of water to a garden isn't it whether even if it's just a tiny little bird bath or a big huge wildlife pond I think any little body of water can really bring a lot more biodiversity into your space absolutely I mean I think it's it's watching that again it goes back to a garden feels alive when there's life in it sounds very obvious but I had to do I didn't have to sorry but I I did a garden for DIY SOS for a lovely woman and her family where normally the stories of DIY SOS are all about the house and that and the needs of the house and in this particular episode it was about the garden being um, a real issue for the family I won't go into all the detail, but the key thing that of one of the reasons as to why this garden was was an issue, not because of the tr- just because of the trauma that had occurred in it to the family, but it was devoid of life. How could this space ever be healing? It's, it it, it traumatised them number one through unfortunately deaths that had occurred in the garden, but equally the way that the space was laid out, there was no life coming into the garden. And that really brought home the fact that you need, the, of course, plants and the, the living plants and the vibration that plants give us, which is not just visually how they look, but they have their own life force that we also get to tap into. But it's the fact that there were no birds coming in. There was no insect life there. There just was, it was just devoid of all of that. So, yeah. I, I think anything that it, that brings that into the garden and and a big expanse of water. I've got a little a little bit of water in here at the moment, which I, I'm hoping to get better at. Really, it, it's not huge. We've, I've only literally just put in a, a small a small pond in here, very small. But we'll see what it brings. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. And if there were, you mentioned some people like Dan Pearson there, if there were some people that you wanted to have in your dream garden, whether that be, I don't know, your fantasy dream head gardener or someone to come in and design the space for you or visitors that you would love to have come and see your dream garden, who would you want to share it with? Well, I think, as you said, the key word there is share, isn't it? Because it would be a little bit rude to have all that space because it would probably be quite big because it's big. It has to be big because it has to kind of fit in the obligatory year round interest. <laughs> you know, when and you- the Lake District, I mean, it's pretty hard to fit the Lake <laughs> District into it. A- <laughs> yeah, the Lake District is, is the back garden. Could you imagine that? Um, yeah. Uh, but... Um, now, yeah, people, people are great. And I have been very fortunate to meet fabulous people. And yeah, wouldn't it be lovely if I was able to have someone like Dan come in and really help assist with the design? Because 
I think collaboration is really, really key. Sometimes people have to think, oh, it's only that designer. Well, of course, everybody, it's not just the designer. The designer is collaborating with so many different people, landscapers, architects, plants people, nurserymen, tree specialists. It's, it's a family of people that create a garden. So you'd need to make sure that you've got those, all of those people in. And the thing I love about Dan is that Dan is, has a fantastic relationship with time. And that is something that definitely has to come into this garden, the, the, the relationship of time, because for a garden to truly establish and be fabulous, it needs time to do that. And in the world that we live in now, everything needs to be press of a button. It's delivered. Bang. And off we go. Instant. Evergreen. Got to look good all year round. That, that's not a reality. And I think having a great relationship with time is good. And I know that Dan is one of those people that's great at that. It's going to feel really bad now because I've either got to do a roll call list that's going to go on forever <laughs> or I feel like I'm not missing anybody out. If you did, because I've not said your name, you know who you are. Um, I mean, head gardeners, they are fabulous people looking after historic sites sites of interest and that's obviously across the world that they're doing that but in the UK sometimes probably our head gardeners again they're under a bit of a bushel the 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 site itself might be sometimes more spoken about than the actual head gardener who is the, the activator the curator of that space the pinnacle person or one of the pinnacle people because of course they are all great is someone like Fergus Garrett. I have to mention Fergus because Fergus is the epitome of pure energy and reinvention. He's been at Dixter, Great Dixter, for 27, 30, 30-odd years, 27 years, 30 years, still with the same drive, energy, reach, sharing of knowledge, learning all the time. And I find that just... Just so effervescent. It's just so effervescent. I do wonder where he's plugging into to get energy. I said to him, you are actually coming from a different life source, actually, Fergus, because I want to know where you're plugged into, because it's not the same grid that I'm on. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, um, we definitely need to bottle whatever it is that he's... He, he's <laughs> yeah, whatever he's got, we need to bottle that. So, Fergus, I mean, Tom Brown is another fabulous head gardener. At Westine. Westine. Just, I've listened to him a few times. We tease each other. and I tease, He teases me a lot because I kept getting his name mixed up with somebody else and it was become a bit of our sort of in-joke. But anyway, I do know it's Tom Brown. And um, again, when I've listened to him speak, the knowledge, the, the share of what he does just getting on with it and and so any any of those people probably any of the head gardeners um i would be happy to to certainly come and have them in in the garden and share in all of their wealth of knowledge i think mentorship is is so important as well as, as we learn because that handing down of knowledge from the elder or the more experienced the wiser the sage whatever you want to call it is really important otherwise it doesn't mean anything and someone like Marion Boswell who you know I when I first started to come into the gardening world sorry she was somebody that I I just connected with it was through social media which I'm not brilliant at social media but there was just again like a, a sort of an energetic spark. There was something about her that I, I, I kind of really admired. And as I've gotten to know Marion, I love her 
her sense of spirituality of place. And I think that that's something that we don't talk enough about probably actually within gardening a lot of what we have to put out to people is all the practicality the steps of how to do things and the textbook of certain things I know I know the time and space we're in now is trying to ensure that people are marrying some textbook with the climate change that we're we're having but we're having to ditch some of that as well and someone like Marion is very much helping people and showing people to get back in tune with yourself and connect to the land through your senses and see what the land or hear what the land is telling you so that would be great people you know like Mike Edwards at Sound Matters he can come to the garden because he's looking at landscapes through our ears <laughs> listening to the physically listening to the landscape because there's things in our soundscape that are disappearing that we probably don't even realize we're so visually saturated with our lovely social media platforms I won't mention who which we all love but we forget to physically listen so there's just yeah I could go on and on Steph because there's just so many people that need to come through that space to make sure that it it feels great one of the people that I would love to visit would be Beth Chateau because I didn't get to meet Beth before she passed away but she was alive when the nursery had grown on some plants for me for the show garden and now Julia Bolton her granddaughter who I'm very good friends with we sort of say oh it's just that moment in time when if I'd just known you a little bit before you could have met Beth but the thing is is that Beth lives on through so many different people I meet so many people that did know Beth Chateau so you do feel that you get to know her a little bit through that and clearly obviously through the work she's done um, at the garden and the nursery so all of those people that have input into our gardening world I think probably I'd end up probably with a little bit of them all come through the garden anyway because their their heritage lives on and John Brooks he can come as well because I spent a little bit of time with him just just a little bit of time before he he passed away so I'd like him to come that would be a very interesting collection of people. I would definitely want to visit your dream garden on well, the same you're on day. The list. Everyone is- you're on the oh, list, great. Steph. I need you there because I need you to come and write about it and share it as well. I mean, you've been so supportive from day one, so definitely you're on the list. Well, I'm honoured. Thank you. I'm definitely going to be there for sure. And if you had to choose some plants or a style of planting, uh, perhaps something that you couldn't have in your real garden for your dream garden what kind of plants or planting do you desire most would you just love to have or do you covet for your fantasy garden one of the planting styles that I guess um ignited quite a lot of me in terms of where I talk now about the environment and climate change was Mediterranean plants in terms of just totally bedazzled by their adaptation to living in extreme heat with minimal water I just found that fascinating all this that kind of I guess first got me looking and thinking about plant strategy and I, and I felt that also as well that with Mediterranean plants it always fills it with the palette of those plants and I'll be shocked for saying this but it felt like you could just bring any plant together where they always look so instantly brilliant I remember doing some volunteering for James Basson and he was um, bringing a plant palette together for a client. And I was having to do it on screen, taking pictures so that we could visually show um, his client. And I kept saying to him, wow, it's just amazing. That if it doesn't, you know, normally you'll sit there moving the pictures around, making sure this one sits with this one, trying to look at a kind of community. They all seem to harmonise so well. 
that said, I, that's my appreciation of that group of plants. But what I don't have in my garden and what I would probably really enjoy is that woodland or straight woodland edge, being able to have a bluebell meadow that you'd be able to just see that Herald Spring, bear in mind I've said that I'm the other, normally kind of more of a sort of high summer into autumn girl, but there is something about, you know, the the, the seeing those, those bluebells come through and watching the light through the tree canopy start to change, which I think would be quite magical. I think it would be that magical element that would be really, really cool. So I think a, a, a woodland would be great. And I think also as well, because woodland planting, you celebrate so much more of leaf texture and spacing and shadows that are in the understory. There isn't any big shouty plants, which... I also love dahlias at the other extreme. But in the woodland, there's a much different meld of plants that go together. I think you see the community very a lot, a lot easier um, than maybe you can in, in some other um, areas. So, yeah, can I have a woodland? Well, it's interesting that you've picked a woodland because I know that you have a book out now on trees and selecting them. I do indeed. And it's co-authored with a fantastic, fantastic tree expert, Henrik Huchman. And it kind of come about, I guess, selfishly in some ways. I was asked by lovely Anna Mumford at Philbert Press if I'd like to write a book. And we had a lovely afternoon chatting and talking about different ideas. And part of that chat and talk was through Woods. And I said, I would really like a book to write a book about trees. But what I would like the content of that book to be was probably was what well, would was is definitely beyond my my skill and experience and I wanted it to be something where tree selection was more than just height spread and what the fruit or berries look like in spring or autumn and I think in fairness a lot of people direct their tree selections with those three criteria and there's so much more to it than that and with a changing climate and with everybody putting so much emphasis on the fact that trees are going to be the thing that gets us out of climate change plant three trillion trees across the world or you know the UK planting x million trees and etc etc it's not as simple as that and I realized that I didn't know what those trees should be for me to go and research it would probably be another lifetime and that's this whole thing about collaboration that I wanted to explore again because you have to talk to the person that, that really knows it. And I, when I came across Henrik in some, a couple of talks that he'd done, I loved his approach. His key thing, think like a tree. You've got to really understand what trees are, what, they, what the benefits that they offer, how they operate, where they live. And we do think about, oh, OK, that's a Mediterranean tree. You know, it, it, it obviously must therefore be able to have drought resistance or drought resilience. But you have to understand how or why it does that so that you can make sure that you're really bringing the right tree to the right place. There was just so much that he had to offer. And we wanted to do the book together so that there was me, if you like, being the person that was, but what about that bit? And I don't understand that bit, Henrik. And how can we look at this and shaping and carving this book so that people learn about how trees function and to really understand that trees 
can only give us all of the amazing benefits or what we call ecosystem services, the services that we get back from trees if they reach maturity, if they manage to keep disease resist, you know, to keep away from disease, pests and disease, that's when they can give us all of the benefits of giving us foods, giving us shade, especially needing that as we hit urban heat islands in our urban city, our urban forest is going to be so important going forward for biodiversity. It gives us timber. They capture carbon. They're fabulous for flood mitigation. They can sort of mitigate pollution. On and on and on the list goes. But only if we understand them and only if we know how to bring them into a level of maturity. So the trees that are in the book, which of course would have to, the five over 550 uh, trees that have been identified that Henrik feels would be trees of the future, that woodland obviously is going to be pretty big. But it's important that people are become less fearful of trees. I think in urban environments, the first panic is about having a tree in your garden. Is it going to cast too much shade? And more importantly, are the roots going to deal with, you know, hit the foundations of my house? No, not all trees are going to do that. Some trees would if you were to be on a very damp site and have a willow tree very close to the house. Maybe you might get some movement with that. But it's also the benefits that you'd be getting coming with it as well. And there is, you know, I've got a garden where I inherited a eucalyptus tree. It's a right old beast. It's not the right plant for the right place. It's the right plant in the wrong place. I didn't plant it. And when I first arrived, I thought, oh, do I take it out? Well, it's actually not hugely brilliant for biodiversity, to be fair. But in terms of its other value of cultural placemaking, it's offering a sense of place now to the to our street. It also as well, you know, helps to screen out the neighbours because I'm back to back with where the neighbours are. And it gives sort of height and structure into the garden. So trees are so, so important, but we, we do need to understand about them. So, yeah, so it was it was just incredible to be able to write this book alongside. Well, you know, be, be alongside Henrik as we wrote this book. Yeah, I mean, I, I've met Henrik and he is not your typical academic. He's definitely not what people would assume from someone who's been researching and experimenting with trees for a long time. He's uh, very passionate, has travelled the world, hasn't he, seeing trees in their native habitats, um, but has a, a very unique presenting style where he he's so engaging and, uh, and really enjoyable to watch speak about something that could be considered quite a dry topic and the work that he's doing in, it's the Gothenburg Botanic Garden and university, isn't that right, where he's yes, based? that's right. Yeah. Did you discover any sort of new trees or trees that you hadn't considered through working on the book with him that you think, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to start using that in my designs or I'm going to tell everybody that this is a tree that possibly because of climate change they didn't consider to be right for the UK before? I'm just interested in recent developments and sort of tree selection and choice for professionals. I'm, I, I'm trying to be really good at not kind of giving specific trees because I think that what happens is again that when we go to talks and lectures and listen to obviously these real experts we write down a list of names really really quickly and then probably find that actually that none of those are suitable for the spaces that we're actually wanting them to go in so more importantly what I really learn is for example in the book you know we've got over 55 different aces you think of aces mainly just being just woodland and just in shaded areas when there are other species that can actually you know tolerate more sun and, and different 
uh, conditions to what we really think. I think the, the key thing about what I've really learned about this book is that you have to understand the tree that you like the look of so you can and and and, and then you have to ha- you have to understand the site what is the reason as to why I'm bringing this tree to this site or what is it about this site that needs a tree and then you've got to do the research and that kind of can sound pretty obvious as certainly uh, for landscape professionals to do that but we tend to have favorites the amelanchia a stalwart favourite that we just love because we know it gives spring flowering, it gives berries in the autumn for wildlife, it's quite good for small gardens. But what can end up happening is that you can end up sort of repeat, 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 putting these different trees in. And one of the things that has become really important, um, Steph, is that the diversity of trees within a, a landscape is going to be incredibly important going forward. I know that there is, without going down the whole garden path about native and non-native but that does come up a lot that a lot of our native trees as we know have been under attack recently whether it's oak professional professional moth or ash dieback etc etc so we are going to have to look to different trees for, for different situations so that's really important and hopefully that this this book is an invitation to professionals as well as the general public just to learn that bit more and it's presented in such a way where there's a lot of pictorial reference so that people can see the exact exemplification of what's meant because for example if you know you're one of the things that that we talk about or Henrik talks about within the in the book is shading and which one of the obvious things about trees you know shading and cooling but obviously we always think about the leaf canopy when when it's in leaf but actually in the wintertime, what's, what's called the BAI, the branch area index, how dense is the branch structure of that tree and therefore the shadow that it might cast in a winter's day onto a building, cooling the building even further. So there's all these different considerations to look at. And um, yeah, I'm quite excited about it. And I would most definitely have lots of post-it notes in the book as I'm putting in the woodland together or the selection of trees around the garden, the fancy garden, because that's what it means. Gardens need trees, definitely. (laughs) And if there was something that you would never allow in your dream garden, that you would bar the garden gate to and that you absolutely loathe and despise what would you say yeah there's quite a lot but one thing I will say no leaf blowers because when I used to garden when I first set out and I did gardening for a little while and people would say to me oh you haven't got a leaf blower or people or friends or family oh should we buy you a leaf blower for Christmas or something and it was like no because I think that the leaf blower gives the sense of being having a hoover in the garden. It just totally is all about tidying up and making things look tidy as opposed to, I guess, really getting us thinking about, you know, what the garden's doing. The leaf blower blows all the tilth off the top of the soil, which is not great. So all those lovely micro insects and microorganisms just get splattered and blown across the garden. They're noisy. I'm okay now. A lot of them are don't have to be petrol. They can be electric. So that's a little bit better. But it's almost a bit kind of, yeah, like you're hoovering the garden. And when you're raking the garden, which probably maybe a couple of the clients I had at the time wish I did have a leaf blower because it would obviously have been a little bit quicker. But when you're raking or 
putting a pile together or you know cutting up picking up your, your clippings from pruning etc you're more in touch with the space and I just think yeah leaf blow is just yeah there's no we don't need to leaf blow I don't need a lawn that looks immaculate no thanks well, there is a movement in America, I think, uh, leave the leaves. That's what they're called. Oh. They're called leaves. So you leave oh. them. So um, leave the, the idea leaves. that especially on borders and places like that, instead of going to the trouble of taking them off and, you, you know, creating leaf mulch, why not just leave them there to break yeah. down on the border? So, um, so yeah, it's definitely a movement at the moment oh. to just leave the leaves. It is really interesting about our vision of what we think has to be on borders leaves obviously is great you know compost to sit on there anyway and i was up at lowther castle in the lake district earlier this year and the gardeners are actually starting to do chop and drop a lot more because they're starting to think well actually we, we take all of the you know the cuttings from the you know, perennials when we're sort of maybe deadheading etc and then we have to cut it off compost it bring it all the way back and they're trying to look at ways of how to minimize uh, you know energy time etc in the garden so i think for the visitors to sort of see i was like looking at all this alcamilla mollus leaves and i was like oh what's going on there and they said yeah we're just kind of going to let it mulch down in the area that it is which if it was in nature that's what it would do so a lot of this is really I guess throwing up this whole what a garden should look like versus what a garden should just be doing and that's the difference I guess isn't it so Ara you've told us that your dream garden would have the wow factor of gardens like Dan Hinckley's Wincliffe and Sarah Raven's Perch Hill as well as the gorgeous views of sunset at the Lake District in the West Country. It would have a gorgeous expansive water like a wildlife pond. It would also have great people coming to visit and help, including Dan Pearson, Fergus Garrett, Beth Chateau. And it would have a woodland with a lovely bluebell meadow at its foot. And uh, you would definitely not have any leaf blowers. But if you had to pick three more quick fire things that you would have to have in your fantasy space, what would they be? Well, I think I'd have to have a vegetable patch because I don't have much space here. And I know that there's every little space counts. And so the the few little vegetables that I grow, which is just the obligatory cucumbers, a few tomatoes, a bit of lettuce in containers. It would be lovely to have a a vegetable patch and it would be lovely if it were maybe community driven as well so that people can come up and really all get involved, take away the produce, that whole sense of going out and picking your own cup of tea or picking tonight's soup, you know, that for some people they do that and it's already something that they're able to do, but it's a luxury that I don't have, which would be really nice. But I think that sharing it would be really massively important and setting that up. The garden, I think I'd have to go back to my roots of having a healing centre within it, really having uh, green therapy at its heart, because that how else are we going to really get back connected to nature if we don't sort of feel it's benefits through our body the aching in our body from actually physically doing some gardening from having the 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 sense of peace it gives you in our heads or being able to let all that mind chatter sort of disappear through an activity or just the existential sort of spiritual reach that gardening does it going back to that that awe feeling as well and and when I think of people that 
the struggle. I, I have friends and family members and their, and their children that are struggling at the minute. And I just wish that that the green therapy was in part of their day to day and that would ha- hopefully help them. It would take time. We we know that all the studies, we know all the books. We have people saying oh, have we not really had enough of hearing about, you know, gardening's good for your mental well-being? No, we haven't heard enough about it because it's the garden is our first, as, as Sir David Attenborough said in a, in a talk that I was at, I was very lucky to hear him say, the garden for most people is their first and maybe only real true experience of the natural world. So we don't get to run around in, in jeeps around the Serengeti and looking at major wildlife moments and being at the Amazon. Most of us have our little patch outside. So if we don't get that bit right so that people can really feel that in their bones and really feel part of the, the wider world, you know, our gardens are these little microcosms of the, the wider world. We are, they're like a little mosaic. They all join up. They all create then a bigger space, urban environment that then hits the wider countryside and which then hits the country, which then hit blah de blah the world. So I think being able to in, in my fantasy garden have a place where people can come and feel safe and be nature immersed, I I, I, I would definitely have to have that for sure. And I'm the third element, I think I'd go back to the, again the light. The light is the magic in any space. It, the, the, the light is, I mean, I'm looking out now as I'm talking to you and looking and seeing all the shadow play on the wall that I have and all the dappled light that comes through it and knowing that light shifts and changes every single second. And it's observing the light and being around light that helps us to shift and change because people find it difficult to manage change. But because we go literally from the contrast of night to day, all those spaces in between is what helps us to progress. And it's only really out in nature spaces that we can um, allow the gentle touch of Mother Nature to help us to manage that change in the chaos that we have created, us little species, we've created the chaos, but Mother Nature just cracks on doing what she does and we have to go and get a little bit more into that so yeah beautiful light around that gardens for people to uh, uh, not just people sorry nature wildlife everything to absorb definitely that was designer and broadcaster Arit Anderson whose new book co-written with Henrik Hulman The Essential Tree Selection Guide is out now thank you for listening we're taking a break for now but we'll be back soon with more great guests until then You can find more great gardening insights online at gardensillustrated.com. Leave a review or comment to let us know who you'd like to hear on Talking Gardens.